Hi, I'm Margie, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. So hello, we're back. Sorry we were gone for so long. (laughs) I really didn't plan it to be that way, but we have some wonderful guests to bring you as way of an apology. (laughs) I hope you're all really well. And thank you for all the genuinely lovely messages that you've sent me since we've been on our break. I can't tell you how wonderful it feels to be told that you're missed. (laughs) That sounds very needy. (laughs) Anyway, this week, my guest is the wonderful Nadia, who is just every bit as lovely in real life as you might expect her to be. There are some delicious dishes in here. I love chatting to her and I hope you enjoy listening. Here we go. My guest today is Nadia Hussein. Nadia won the Great British Bake Off in 2015, three and a half years ago, and won not only the competition, but our hearts in the process, securing her the position of national treasure. She's gone on to write a whole host of cookbooks, both for adults and children. She's turned her hand to writing novels, has presented multiple series for the BBC. She says, I don't know if I can still call myself a stay-at-home mum, but it feels like I am still one, with the added bonus of doing the most amazing job. I don't have a title, but when anyone asks my kids, what does mommy do? They always respond with, she lives her dreams. So I suppose that is exactly what I'm doing. Welcome, Nadia. Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh, there's a bit of a lump in my throat. Yeah, oh, <laughs> me too, actually. Yeah. Your children sound like the most adorable people. And I always like to ask when, this is quite a stressful question, but when people ask you what you do, how do you answer that question? Or are you at the stage where people just simply know? Yeah, no. No, I, I, it's really odd because, like you said in the introduction, like if somebody asks my kids, they're just like, I don't really know what she does, but she kind of lives her dreams. And isn't that as a parent, all we want for our kids is yeah. to see them, see us do what we love. And being at home with them, it's really odd because I don't actually weirdly have, I don't, I don't feel like I have a job title. It's just, I'm still at home with them. And when I'm at home with them, it's always them. It's everything about them. And being a mum at home is by far one of the best things I've ever done. But I get to write cookbooks and go traveling and do some amazing things, which my kids always fear when I'm reading my emails. I'm like, and I get really excited. They're like, oh no, where's she going to now? Oh no. <laughs> so they kind of hate it a little bit. Yeah. But like you say, so good for them to see that. Absolutely. I wondered, how do you think you're going to get on on a desert island? Because you strike me as quite a resourceful kind of person. Well, I, I'll eat anything. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not scared to get my hands dirty. Yeah, because you've said maybe I'm a celebrity. That kind of idea doesn't scare you at all. Not at all. There's nothing about the jungle that scares me at all. I don't like leeches, though. Oh, okay. Well, you shouldn't say that. I I feel like (laughs) when they say what you're most afraid of, you should just be like candy floss. Yeah. And I'll cover you. Yeah, I'm scared of (laughs) candy floss and sweets. Um, But yeah, no, I don't like stuff like that doesn't scare me. And I think when something scares me, the thing I tell myself naturally automatically is just do it. Like you could be on the other side. Like when you've done something that's really scary to be on the other side of that scary thing is such a wonderful feeling. And we're all scared. I mean, I don't, I think it's because I've got kids, I've become a really good liar. So I, you know, I'm really good at faking it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not scared deep down. Like I'm really petrified, but I've become really good at saying to the kids, I'm absolutely fine. But I think it's also 
really important to show your kids that you are a little bit afraid and doing things that scare you. Yeah, it's totally normal. Yeah. So it's time to talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. That would have to be. And that's always, that'll never change, is my mum's chicken korma. Ooh, what's her secret? Um, Lots of butter. Okay, as always, the best. Butter (laughs) makes everything better. And my mum only cooks it twice a year because it's quite a rich dish. And she only cooks it twice a year and we have it on Eid. So we have twi- we have Eid twice a year and my mum only ever cooks it twice a year. So it's really special because I cook it for my kids sometimes. And I think because they eat it, we're used to eating it alongside a celebration. They can't understand why I cook it. And they're like, yeah, but it's not Eid. So it's like, but, but does it feel sort of doubly special because of that? Absolutely. Because yeah. she cooks five chickens so all the family get around and she has to cook five chickens and it's got something like i think maybe the, a tray of 30 eggs oh my god go into it so the big pot yeah um and she cooks it really slowly and she cooks it two days before so what she because it tastes better two days later so she cooks it puts it in the garage nice and cold and then she takes it out on eid morning and we all turn up and literally that pot sits on the stove all day and it just warms and we just go in and just eat as oh, much as you want. That, that and samosas, but, you know, chicken korma, my mum's chicken korma. Now I've just stopped making it because I make it occasionally, but it's when my mum makes it. It's just, it's so special. And yeah, I, think, I think she might put a kilo of butter in. Oh, <laughs> just saying. yeah, nothing wrong with that. Nope. So your mum would prepare really elaborate meals for you consisting of eight medium-sized curries with a big pot of rice cooked from scratch for six children. And she did that every single day. Was that just your mum being super mum or is that sort of a Bangladeshi tradition? That's a very normal Bangladeshi home. Absolutely. So if anybody turns up to my house and I've only got two, they're like, "Mm, mm, mm." so disappointed, corrupted, (laughs) corrupted by the Western society. That's what they'll say. Uh, But for my mum, you know, she cooked the way she grew up being fed. Uh, And my nan would cook eight curries. Even now she's got cataracts, losing her eyesight and still she tries to chop onions. We're like, Nan, you need your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Love, put the knife away. It's a risky business. Yeah. So she still tries to cook and she's like close to 90. So it's completely normal. And so it wasn't her being super mom. But for me now, when I look back, I think, how did you do that? Six yeah. kids, eight curries. But she took pride in being a housewife. And, you know, she she took a lot of pride in, in, in looking after her children. And that was her job. And she did it really, really well with, in saying that she had two kids of six of us. Two were really, really poorly. So... She was doing that and she was in and out of hospital I mean, nine months of the year. So I don't know how she did it, but she did. And you know, the thing is, she made it look effortless. Well, also, I heard an interview where you said it was a lot of food, but somehow every day it all got eaten. <laughs> yeah, it got eaten. And then there was a bit, I really like the, the curry on the second day. So she would cook fresh curries almost every day. And then I would look around the kitchen to see where the little pots, little bowls of the leftover things like cabbage, you know, when cabbage has been cooked, heated two or three times, tastes really, really good. And, and like some of her meat curries, like lamb and, and her beef, you know, a couple of days later, it would taste really good. So she'd leave them in the back of the fridge for me. So I would find them, zap them in the microwave and then eat them. So, I mean, even now. Even now. Why did we record this before lunch? (laughs) (laughs) So your father also sounds amazing. He started as a waiter before working his way up and then owning his own restaurants. So the entrepreneurial spirit obviously runs in your family. Yeah, well, he was, um, for as long as I can remember, he's always worked in restaurants and he started off as a waiter and he went on to run a couple of restaurants himself. But the thing is, he's so generous. He's really good at 
cooking and being front of house and looking after his guests, but just really bad at running a business. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if somebody smiled at him, he'd say, on the house. <laughs> he's too nice. Yeah, he's too nice. But in saying that, they're two very different cooks. You know, my dad, we used to call him the spoff, the single point of failure. He was the person who would try and run the kitchen, run, try run front of house and try and do everything. And so he kind of did everything, but very average. But when it comes to cooking, he was the, I can see a little bit of both of my parents in me because I, you know, all the traditional stuff I learned from my mom, so the traditional ways of cooking certain things, but dad, he's got this thing about him. He's really adventurous and he's a little bit, and he likes to push, push the boundaries a little bit. And he'll, he'll say, Oh, do you think we can eat that? And he asks those questions that I say in my own head. I'm like, dad, do you think that would work? And he's like, Oh, I don't know. Should we have a go? And then we'd have a go. I read a story where you were describing that you and your dad were mowing the lawn together and you asked him, what do you think grass tastes like? And he said, I don't know. So you cooked it and you ate it. Yeah, well, he, he, <laughs> he, I was in the kitchen and he was mowing the lawn and he said, do you think we can eat grass? It's like, no, dad. And it's like, cows eat grass. And this is a conversation <laughs> we're shouting over the lawn mower going. And then he cooked it and, and we said, well, you've done it. You eat it. And it's like, nah, there's a reason why we don't oh, eat grass. <laughs> it wasn't good. So it was not one that we know. But that's what I love about him. He, well, yeah. He's, he's like a, he's a, he's a little mad hatter. He just, he, he just, when he's in the kitchen, he's in his element and he loves, you know, he doesn't, and the thing is he doesn't throw anything away. And I think I've definitely got a little bit of that where if I can cook it, then I will. Yeah. And if you don't try, you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't always turn out right. No. But, <laughs> but if you don't try, you know, how else, you know, I get really angry when something doesn't work out because it means I have to throw it away. Yeah. It's so annoying. So I kind of do things in little batches and see if they work. Yeah. So I found a really lovely quote from you where you're talking about the different food of your childhood. And you said, the thing about food is what comes with it. And British food for us represented freedom. I was eating, I remember eating fish cakes for the first time, mainly potato, hardly any fish, lots of parsley. And it was just so cool. Also melted cheese. To me, it wasn't bland. It was delicious. And I love that way of thinking about food, because as always, it's about so much more than just the food itself, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think because of the, I've kind of grown up in a Bangladesh, I grew up in a Bangladeshi household. So I ate rice and curry every single day, you know, during the holidays, we were, you know, you think about it, lunch and dinner. Yeah. And sometimes when there was leftover rice, mum would fry the rice with eggs in the morning oh, and then we would yeah. have that. So it was rice three times. Didn't think anything of it. I did not think, hey, it's a little bit weird that we're eating rice for all three meals. So it was a very consistent way of eating and easy, took the thinking away from my mum. But going back to school was always really exciting because I got to eat the things that made me British. You know, I got to eat chips and beans and pizza and, um, you know, fish cakes. You know, I got to eat all of those things that my mum couldn't make. And that was the British part of me. And, I, and that made me feel really proud because it's really weird because growing up, then you become a teenager and you're kind of trying to find who you are. And you're not quite sure whether you're Bangladeshi or whether you're British. And there was times in my life where I was like, I hate the Bangladeshi part of me. And there's times in my life where I thought, well, actually, I don't even like the British part of me either. And what's lovely is now that I've got my own children, there are two parts of me that I can never take away. And I've been able to, and, and that's so obvious in the food that I cook, because there's no part of me that's fully Bangladeshi or fully British. It's just this weird melting pot of food that I cook that makes me happy and makes me who I am. And, yeah. you know, I, the only reason why I'm here today is because my granddad, made a bold choice and sent my dad over here to a world he knows nothing about. And, you know, I get to be a part of this amazing, amazing country and a, these 
two communities that have kind of become this one place for me and I, I get to call it my own. And that's, that's because just like my granddad was bold and he had a dream and, 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 you know, I get to live that. That's, he never got to see any of it. <laughs> that's such a lovely way of thinking about it all. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So the first thing that I learned to cook was um, an Indian omelette. Oh, tell me. So there's a British way of cooking omelette. And so the egg's a little bit slightly runnier. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not into that. No. <laughs> no, I'm not into that. I don't like... You don't run- like raw egg? <laughs> no, I just... I like a soft boiled egg. But an omelette that's got like wet bits in, not into that at all. And maybe that's because the first thing I ever learned to cook was an Indian omelette. So that's eggs cracked into a bowl. But before you crack the eggs in, you've got to add your onions, your chilies, your coriander and salt. And you use your hands to cook the onions oh. by squishing them. So you really go for it and like really like um, macerate the onions. So you're doing some of that cooking with the so- seasoning already in the bowl. Then you add the eggs. So what you don't get when you cook the omelette is raw onion. That's so clever. Yeah. And my mum, my nan did that. Didn't even, I didn't even think anything of it, but they use their hands when they're making salads. They mulch up the onions with their hands, which is something I always do now. Like I I don't even think about it, but what it does is when the onions and the salt hit and you use your hands to squeeze, it cooks the onion. So you don't get that horrible kind of like really strong onion flavor so that's the first thing I learned it's great it's so exciting I remember getting my hand straight in and and and, and then forgetting that I just squished chilies and then scratching my eyes oh no yeah yeah we all <laughs> only make that there. mistake once yeah well no <laughs> or twice yeah, yeah I still do it <laughs> and so then do you cook it sort of like a pancake it's yeah that. so you because we didn't have a grill or an oven so it's all done on the stove and you add lots of oil to the base like you have to add quite a lot of oil and then you throw all the eggs in and you give it a really good stir and then once you've got a solid base you just stick the lid on and just leave it and it's so delicious but the first time my mum showed me how to make it and then she thought well she can do an omelette let's just my mum had to go out Uh and I might have been about 13 and my mum said yeah could you just make this omelette please and I said absolutely but she didn't (laughs) specify how many eggs I was allowed to use okay and there were 24 eggs on the tray oh no what this must have been the biggest omelette in the world so when you cook eggs, I forgot that they swell up. They do that weird swelly thing. Yeah. And then once they start to cool down, they kind of deflate a little bit. Yeah. Right. So I had this, it was, it was a good pan. It was a good pan. So it did save me, but I cooked all 24 eggs. You made an omelette with 24, 24 eggs. eggs. <laughs> and I got my brother in on it because I realized by the time I got to egg, maybe 12 or 13, that I'm going to get into trouble. So I was like, Hey, do you want to help me? So like I broke him plan. in. So at least we can share part of the blame. Yeah. And was this a younger brother? Yeah, only by yeah. a year and a bit. But so, still. But he yeah. was like, you know, he was going to take some of it for me. So we made this 24 egg omelette with just one very small onion. And it just didn't taste very good. And my mum was livid. Was she? she was livid because those 24 eggs were going to last us a lot longer than one meal. She was so annoyed. Um, I mean, I can't even picture an omelette made with 24 eggs, but I'm very impressed. I'm going to keep that and then I might make that a recipe in another book. I perhaps think so. Someday. I think you're onto something. Yeah. Yeah. But my mum said that you're going to have to eat it all by yourself. Oh. So she, so I had to sit through like half of that omelette and it wasn't very tasty at all. Um, and then I think she, she had some mercy on me by about four or five mouthfuls. She's like, 
fine get lost go on go she saw you there like three hours later and she's like okay <laughs> go yeah and by the sounds of it you had an amazing teacher at school who taught you to bake before that you say that you thought the oven was a cupboard because your mum didn't bake and she used the oven for storage you described the first time watching a cake being made as just being completely magical and I think that's a feeling that just doesn't go away do you still feel like that about absolutely cooking? there's something about mixing eggs and flour and sugar and sticking it in the oven and out comes this cake it is like it's like a magic hat it's like a magician's hat you know when you stick bits in and then out comes a rabbit unless you're making rabbit pie it's great when a cake comes out um (laughs) there's something still really magical about that and sometimes I, I I find myself kind of staring into the oven and it takes me back to when I was 11 12 years old and I said to Mrs Marshall you're mad she was one of those teachers, you could say she's mad and she wouldn't tell you off. And I said, you're mad. I said, how can you, that, what is that? What are you doing? She goes, we're baking cake. And it just dawned on me at that time. I remember that I'd never seen a cake being baked, even though I'd watched Delia on the telly and I'd watched Ainsley and they'd all done stuff like that. But it never dawned on me that, you know, because it was the first time I was seeing it in front of me. Yeah. And I grew up with stovetop. Everything was stovetop. All, anything sweet my mum made was deep fried. It was all on the stove. So, for me, it was magical. And she put all her frying pans in the oven. So I thought it was just storage. So you imagine when Mrs. Marshall is <laughs> cranking up this oven. I'm like, she is heating What's up. What's she doing? She's heating up that cupboard. She's <laughs> lost it. I like that you say your mum, she kept pots and pans in there. Because when I first read that, I was kind of imagining her, imagining her like Carrie from Sex and the City using it as a wardrobe. But it was, it was kitchen stuff. It was kitchen stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she... And I remember going back that day, pulling all the ovens out. And I'm like, you've been doing it wrong your whole life, mum. Let's whack this thing on because it'd never been turned on. And was she interested? Not at all. No. Put my pot, pots okay. and pans back and leave my <laughs> eggs alone, please. But it, it's not just cakes. Puddings aren't that big a deal in Bangladeshi culture, are they? No, I never grew up. I mean, there are the kind of Indian sweets, those you know, you can buy them. There are loads of Indian sweet shops in Luton, which I love going to because they're like, the, the smell of clarified butter and sugar mixed together, like that wafts out of the doors are just mesmerizing. But no, we never grew up in school. We would go to lunch and we'd have lunch and then we'd have pudding. But at home, we never had, there was no such thing as have dinner and then have something sweet. And in fact, it would probably be the other way around. So if we ever went to people's houses, what they would do is give you the sweet bit first, which is usually oh, something... Right a sweet deep fried fritter or sometimes those very sweet Indian sweets. And that's kind of a way of welcoming you. So they would usually give you the sweet first and then you'd have the savory. So there was no, there are desserts, but there, there's no culture of eating dessert, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. That's certainly not what I grew up with. And of course that's changed for my family because the first thing they do is, okay, we're having dinner, but what's, what's what's for pudding. (laughs) But in saying that my kids had blueberry cake for breakfast this morning. Oh, your kids are living the dream. They had blueberry cake. Talking of living the dream, didn't you used to make your husband a cake every day? I still bake him. <gasps> you do? I do. Still I mean, he day. has majorly hit the jackpot, obviously, in more, way than, more ways than I would being married to you. But <laughs> a cake a day? Yeah. Well, he runs, um, he runs seven miles every day. He plays squash four times a week. He runs, my little boy runs with him. So they all 
he's very active and he in, in between all of that he finds time to walk 5k every day as well so I, and i i kind of say why do you like it's kind of overkill like you don't have to run and walk and play squash all in one day and and he just he simply does it so he can eat whatever he likes he wants he wants to eat your cake and he eats everything <laughs> like he does not hesitate sometimes i'll eat something and say i probably shouldn't have eaten that but he does not he just he he can eat he can eat and it was him who sent off the bake-off application for you you'd been a busy mum for 10 years raising three children and he said somewhere along the way your wings were clipped and i haven't seen you fly which is just the most lovely turn of phrase obviously he always believed in you and saw your potential but do you think even he is surprised at quite how high and how far you've flown and are flying i don't think he cares how high or far as long as i come home I don't think he cares. I just, um, I think there are times when we step back and think, how did this happen? Because we didn't, I know he didn't put the application in. There was no, there was no end goal. There was no mission. It was just go do something away from me and the kids. You'd rely on us emotionally so much that kind of we got lost in this fog and I was getting deeper and deeper and my mental health was suffering and it was just, it, I could not find a way out and bake off. Uh, allowed me to do some of the things that I would never have done, getting on a train, getting lost, yeah. finding my way. I did all of those things without him or the kids. And and I think those points where I was really low at Paddington Station, lost and crying and profusely sweating, I thought, this is it. This is it. This is me doing something for me. And as yeah. painful as it is right now, you know, I've never done this before. I've never allowed myself to be scared. Um, so it was the making of you. Yeah, I think there was that. I think I've always been in there somewhere. It's just I've I've always struggled just a little bit. So it's yeah. not it's not been easy. But we kind of step back sometimes and think, how has this happened? Yeah. And I always say I'm so lucky, and he always corrects me and yeah. says, No, you're not lucky. You're really good at what you do. Yeah. And he always corrects me, and I'm like, Don't be ridiculous. And I always correct him again, and we have this debate every <laughs> few weeks. But he always says, You're not lucky. You're just really good at what you do. And and I'm I'm lucky because I love doing this and I wouldn't have it any other way. And yeah, it takes me away from my family and my home sometimes, but they get to see me do a job that I love. And, you know, ultimately that's what I want to see my kids do is to go off and do something that they love, whatever it is. Yeah, we also can't ignore the fact that your husband turned into a total heartthrob when he appeared on the final. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He got like, yeah. he got 10 seconds. Yeah, the nation went into meltdown <laughs> he, over that 10 seconds. He got 10 <laughs> seconds and... It was really funny because we were out the other day and this man said, oh, I recognize you off the telly. Like, oh. To him? Yeah. And I wanted to just kind of like start, you know, there was this like bromance going on then. And I try, I wanted to like intercept and say, hello. Like, <laughs> That's yeah. And they're like, where have we seen you? We've seen you on the telly. It was really funny. And they were, I, I just kind of stepped back. I was buying coffee. So I just let this happen, yeah. just let it happen. And he couldn't like, he couldn't crowbar the fact that he'd see me on telly because of my wife. And so I was just like, you know, I'm going to let him do this on his own. <laughs> so I just kind of turned around and sat down with the coffee and let him, let, let him deal with it. So it's quite funny. He finds it really, he thinks it's ridiculous. So funny. <laughs> Let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh, the best dish that I've ever, ever, ever eaten is in, and, and I think the best dishes are not from the best restaurants and sometimes not even the ones that your mom's cooked. It's the kind of unlikely little nooks and crannies that you find, which they're the best bits. Yes. So I hate going on holiday, not looking. I, I love going on holiday and looking for those little nooks and crannies, but we used to go to Bangladesh every single year. And there was this in, in the, in the capital, there's, there was this, there's loads of like, 
food vendors and street food vendors lined across the street. But there was this tiny little restaurant that you had to walk down. It's literally like a little hole in the wall. And you go in, there's something about, there's about 12 seats. And you go in and you sit down and they do one thing on their menu. What is it? That's it. Just, I was like, where's the menu? He goes, there is no menu. You eat one thing and one thing only. And it is, so it's a flaky paratha. So it's like a flaky, buttery flatbread topped with grilled mutton, like just grilled, hot, charred mutton pieces, tiny, tiny little soft pieces. And then on top of that, a really fiery onion mustard. Oh my goodness. With this mustard seeds crushed just finely sliced onions and and mustard oil and you just wrap that up and you eat that that's it i mean just a few simple ingredients and one thing on the menu and and I, even now i'm salivating just yeah. talking about <laughs> we should not have done this no lunch. we really shouldn't um, that sounds amazing it was absolutely delicious and i can you know when you just can't recreate something yeah it just wouldn't taste the same no, just can't recreate it's so good so good. You need to go back ASAP. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I know you said you never expected to get past the first week on Bake Off, but as the weeks went on and you were getting further down the line, did you begin to think that maybe you could win? Absolutely not. Really? No way. I went home every single night and cried. Really? And said, I can't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I'm really struggling to post. So I was practicing five days, so Monday to Friday, and I would never practice. I'd practice while the kids were at school, but my, my little girl had just started nursery, so she was with me half days. So... Anytime I had a kid with me, I was not practicing because I didn't want them to know what I was doing. Oh, I see. So it was all a secret. So yeah. And they couldn't tell the time at the time. So what I did was I used to tell them, guys, it's bedtime. (laughs) And I had like Eagle Piggle on record. So I would play him at six o'clock and I'd say, guys, look, it's bedtime. Time to go. And they're like, okay. And they'd go off. That is a very good time. I know. I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Can't do it anymore. Unfortunately, they could tell the time. But I would send them off to bed and I would start at six o'clock and I would um, practice till three in the morning. (gasps) And then I'd go to sleep at three and that was my routine for 10 weeks. Oh my goodness. And every time I would cry over the oven and say, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he was like, just keep going. Yeah, keep going. And you did it. And I did it. But are you, is there any part of you that is a competitive person? Because I read an interview where you said as a child, you would pretend you hadn't done any revision when actually secretly you'd done loads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I love. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the kind of person that revised on the go. Okay. So when it came to revision, I was like, nail that, nail that. I can do that. I can do that. Let's just relax. So everyone thought I wasn't revising, but I'd already done it. Okay. So I say I'm not competitive, but it is a lie. I am a little bit competitive, but I think I've been the least competitive. I think when it was Bake Off, it was hard just waking up in the morning and getting up, let alone being competitive. So I wasn't in it to win it. I was in it just to get by, get through each day. I mean, I was considering faking my own death. (gasps) Really, I was. I did say that. I was like, I said to my husband, "Could you just tell them I died?" And he was like, you, "I can't tell them you died." He's like, "If you want to do that, you should tell them." Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I died. Honestly, it was that stressful. So that's probably the time I was the least competitive I've ever been in my life. But I'm competitive. Over, I'm like, I get competitive over really silly things. Um, so. I'll do the laundry and my husband says, oh, I can do it faster than you. I'm like, no, I can do it faster than you. And I'll do it really fast, do a really bad job, but at least I've done it faster. So we're both really competitive. So we're always competing with things like who can do the bed the nicest. I was like, I can make the bed the nicest. That's a good competition. It is a good competition. I guess with Bake Off, in a way, like 
the competition meant so much more to you than just winning. Like you were getting so much more from it in terms of all of this incredible personal development that actually by focusing on that rather than the competition, it probably was part of what made you so successful in the end. Yeah, I think what I hadn't realized I was doing was every week when I was struggling with my anxiety and having secret panic attacks and trying to hide it, what I'd never done up till this point was actually face those fears and, and, and push myself so far that I had to actually realize I had no choice, but to realize, Hey, hold on a second. You can deal with this. You know, you know, you know, it's not for so long. I hid behind my ha- family and my kids that, and I just, li- I was just living with it. I didn't even think for a second, Hey, hold on a second. You can actually, you know, you realize that you can go right. You can go rock bottom and come right back up. And there were points in Bake Off where I was so low, like so down that I did not think I could get back up, but I had to, I had no choice because I was not about to crumble in front of everyone. And that's just kind of the way I was, I suppose it's the way I'm built. You know, I just, I would refuse to crumble because I had, I just growing up when you're one of six and you've got younger brothers and sisters, you show them how it's done. And so you, you don't crumble and you show them that you're tough and you're strong. But in saying that, you know, now that I've got my own kids, there is, there's nothing wrong with showing a bit of vulnerability and showing that you're not okay. You don't have to be strong all the time. And it's really weird because during Bake Off, all I did was stay strong all the time and constantly show my kids that I can do it. Yet I've come out the other end realizing actually it's not that important to be strong all the time. It's important to show that you can have moments in your life when you're weak and you're not feeling a hundred percent, but you know, it will all go away. It passes. So yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, this is not the most natural segue from this important <laughs> Go conversation, on. but it's the fourth desert island dish. Nadia, what is your favorite sandwich? Great segue. Great. I see how you did that. <laughs> really, really good. Um, so yeah, sandwiches. I've completely Sorry, I'm completely thrown me. I was getting really emotional then. Now I have to talk about sandwiches. <laughs> um, right. So it, it's, mine is like a weird sort of, when I have a sandwich, I don't like brown bread. Uh, yeah. Not into brown bread. I love brown bread. But if I'm having this sandwich, it's got to be white, the kind of pre-sliced, straight up dirty white bread. Love it. Yeah. Lots of butter, cheese, Marmite. Ooh. Then Marmite crisps on top of that. Oh, yes. Then salad cream. Okay. Then another bit of bread. Yeah. And then always cut into triangles. Always. I'm not into the square. They just don't The rectangle. The you know, when you cut them into rectangles, yeah. I don't like it because... It, it, it's, I just I can't eat I can't eat rectangle sandwich yeah. unless it's a crustless finger egg sandwich. Still don't like rectangle. Okay. I like a triangle <laughs> because I like that corner. I like taking yes. the two corners off first. Oh, you don't go for the middle. No, never. Oh no, 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 no. no. Me neither. Who does the that? corners are the the corners are the the least interesting bits. So you eat the corners first, and then I go in from there. Yeah. yeah. I had a feeling you were into crisp sandwiches because I read that as a child you like to put frosties. Yeah. In jam bread and jam so we we had to have like we wanted something sweet so we ha- always had frosties in the house you know the days when you could eat frosties without guilt yeah um <laughs> these days you have to like smuggle in frosties now <laughs> what frosties um but sugary frosties when they had loads of sugar on you know where you could find the bits of sugar on 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 the one you everyone looks for that one with loads of sugar yeah. fell at the bottom of the drum pan thing that was being <laughs> cooked and coated in so frosty so we'd get white bread again with jam and then frosty so we would make frosty sandwiches you should get into that yeah i, I mean i'm i'm on board with all 
It's so, so tasty. <laughs> so as soon as Bake Off ended, life must have just changed so quickly because it's filmed in advance. Obviously, you knew that you'd won. But did you expect the reaction that you got? Because people really fell in love with you. From my perspective, I couldn't understand it. I just, I was just me and I wasn't, I'm not very good at not giving myself whole, wholly. I think, whole, I think, I think when I did Bake Off, I hadn't realized, I, I watched Bake Off right up, like up to now, I still watch Bake Off. And the hardest year to watch was the year I was on because it was my face on yeah. in HD and nobody needs that. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and that was the hardest year to watch and I couldn't quite, um, while I was filming it, I think I'd forgotten. There's this naivety to being in that tent, you forget that, hold on, everything that you do is going to be, sh- you know, like some people are going to watch this. So you kind of forget. And That's so, so good though that you do forget that. And I think I did. And I think a lot of us did. We went in there and we did our thing and we did what we love to do. And we forgot that it's going to be on television, which is great because it makes great telly because you can be, if you're being yourself, then, you know, what better, that's all we want is for we want to see you on television. And I think I forgot that this is going to be aired and I just carried on and just baked and got a little bit frantic at times, but I loved it. And I think that's the thing. I think I, I didn't expect to, to watch it back and realize that, you know, I, I was just being me. And I think that's lovely that people can, people watch that and thought, Oh, we like her. Yeah. And you know, I didn't go on there to be liked. I went there to like myself. And, you know, I want to say I came away liking myself and, and I have, you know, lots has changed. A lot of things have changed for me. And I think, yeah, I've, I've definitely come away four years later with a different love for myself that I never had before Bake Off. Oh, that's amazing. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. The thing that I think we all eat the most in our house is probably chicken soup Ooh. because it's the thing that I can't throw away. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I can't throw stuff away. So whenever we've had a Sunday roast, um, or we've done like, even if I've done like, just if I've done a, a dish with chicken bones in, I save it all, cook the chicken bones up and then get off all that extra meat, which you can get quite a lot of meat. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll chicken soup. We always have chicken soup in the freezer and we always have some in the fridge because it's just such an easy lunch, such an easy thing to eat. And, um, it's great because sometimes my son will take it in a flask and he'll drink it and have it at school for his lunch. So it's, it's, it's something that we have all the time and it just makes you feel really good. It just, yeah, it's so, it feels really good for you. Yeah. It's so comforting. Yeah. And so delicious. Yeah. It ticks all the boxes. So I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I do think that your story is really inspirational for lots of different reasons, but I really love that your career success came after you had children. And I think it's so important because it shows that everyone has their own timing in life. And I think sometimes we impose our own limitations in a way, don't you think? Yeah, I, I remember being 21 and having children and looking back and thinking, all my friends are going off to university, they've got careers. And, you know, a lot of people I know now that I knew back then, you know, they're only just having children. And but I also see them battling themselves a little bit because it's that they're having to make that choice. Now, it's something you work so hard for, you have to then say, okay, I'm going to stop for a little while so I can do this other bit of my life. And I suppose for me, it was the exact same way, even though on the outside, I was looking at them and really envious of the lives that they had. I'd done the same thing. I'd kind of said, well, actually I'm doing this bit first. And at the time, I suppose I didn't see it because I wanted to have children, but it felt like the next step after getting married. Yeah. Um, and I didn't go to university. So it felt like, well, if I'm not going to university, then it seems only right to just get married and, and have children. And all the while, quite envious of my friends and people around me going off to university. But 
I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And, and I think that was really, at the t- I mean, t- 14 years ago, I would never have said this to you, but you know, now it feels like, you know, everything, life runs its course, no matter how many times you think you've made the decision, life has a funny way of just getting in the way and just doing its own thing anyway. And I feel really lucky that I had my children when I was in my twenties. Um, I could not imagine I cannot imagine myself with child now, honestly. I just, what, were they young? Like, no, like just the pregnancy. I don't know if I could handle it. Just, <laughs> I don't know if my hips can do it anymore. Just three kids later, just, I just can't imagine myself doing it. And, and you know, life is, you know, we get, to, we can go to the cinema. Well, yeah. And we don't even need booster <laughs> seats anymore. So it's really You're lovely. Living the dream. <laughs> I know. We don't even need booster seats. And it's great because... It, I couldn't imagine having a child now because we just feel like we've just kind of all settled into our roles, you know, kids included. We just have our own roles and everybody, and, and it just could, yeah, it would be no, no children for me. Let's talk about the cookbooks because you've written so many now yeah. and you've written novels. Is there anything you can't do? But before you answer that, um, tell me about the new one. Like, what can we expect from it? So, Time to Eat is. I'm really excited and and I say this every time, but I am really, really excited because this is how I cook. And this is kind of, there are no, no filters, nothing, you know, this is me and this is how I cook. And, and what's lovely is that, you know, this, this is a combination of, we spoke about being Bangladeshi, being British. And that's kind of, that's the kind of sense every single book has had is that there is no such, and there's no one culture is this weird fusion mashup that I am. Um, and that's what the book's all about, but it's about making time. We all talk about being time poor and we all talk about not having enough time being rushed, but it's about making time to eat. And I have this, um, I'm really hopeful that people will look at it and think, Oh, I think I can do this. It's about giving people a little bit of hope, a little bit of inspiration to say, actually, yes, I'm time poor. Yes. I don't always have time to cook nutrition, nutritious meals or time to feed the family. Or even if it's just you on your own, it's about giving people the confidence to say, actually, hold on, let me step back. Let me think about how I think about food and how I cook. And this book is all about rethinking how you cook and what you cook with and just thinking a little bit ahead. And this is how I do it. This is how I cook. So I have things like, for me, there are like a few rules, like the freezer is your friend. Don't be scared of the microwave, you know, batch cook and always think a week ahead. Um, If you're cooking now, say for instance, if I'm cooking a a curry right now and I've given myself an hour, why not double up on that curry and just cook it? Eat one this week, freeze one for next week. Yeah. Cook once, eat twice. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. there are so many good tips in the book. I love it. And it does feel, as you say, really personal to how you're actually cooking. And I like that you say, no, this isn't like the only way of doing it. And it's not necessarily the right way, but this is how I do it. Yeah. It's really helped me. Yeah. It's not, it's not, this is not me saying that I'm going to change your life. Yeah. It doesn't feel preachy. The, no, it's just absolutely useful. not. This is not, it's in no way, this is not the guide to changing your life. Yeah. But sometimes we all need a little bit of help to say, actually, hold on a second. You do have the confidence. You can find the confidence. And this is this book is just holding your hand. That's all it is. Because sometimes we lack, we're worried about not having enough inspiration. And I think this is what it is. You've got lovely, really fun, interesting recipes that people, I think people are going to enjoy making, but really enjoy eating. Yeah. And in the same in the same breath, I think what's great about the book is that there's nothing preachy. It's about just holding your hand and saying, you know what, actually you can find the confidence to do this. And I think that's all it is. So yeah, yeah. I think it may be your best yet. I hope so. I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. Yeah. 
think so. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. So I don't do dinner parties. You don't? No, okay. never had a proper dinner party okay. with sit-down guests and, and like never really had it because... All of my dinner parties involve children. Okay. And there's no such thing. I mean, yeah. So dinner party, we can play fast and loose with the term dinner party. Yeah. If you were having friends over. So if I was having people over, I like to do things in one pot. Okay. So I like to stick to everything in one pot. And there's, um, I do a lamb dansak, which is my favorite thing to do. But lamb dansak takes hours and hours and hours to cook. But one thing that I always, that one thing about this book is that it's about canned, appreciating canned food. So lentils and beans take hours to soak and cook but this lamb dansak is made with lamb with and it takes like a fifth of the time to cook than in than what you would normally spend in a kitchen and it's made by pulverizing cooked canned kidney beans and you still get the delicious flavor of beans and lentily kind of thickness goodness but with that with half the time and that's the kind of thing i would cook one pot everybody get in i'm the kind of Stick everything in the middle. Everybody help yourself. Yeah, it's the best way. No, those are the funnest ways. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we have a cookbook corner on Desert Island. Yes. Yeah. What is your most treasured cookbook? Ooh. Oh, what's my most treasured? At the moment, I don't have, I, I go through, like, I love every Nigel Slater book in the history of time. Yeah. But at the moment, I really, really like Ottolenghi's Sweet. Ooh, I, a goodie. Yeah, it's a really good one. So really, really interesting uh, recipes in there so I mean I'm not surprised you chose a sweet book <laughs> yeah I do like a sweet book yeah. <laughs> we're on to the final seventh desert island dish and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island always fish and chips oh yeah curry sauce and a pickled egg oh so good and what would you have for pudding oh I never know it's you know what I'm happy with the digestive <laughs> yeah I like sometimes I'm really happy with the digestive oh, I think I pay for the last meal so I think we can stretch okay digestive. fine yeah <laughs> but I love a digestive dipped in a jar of lemon curd Ooh, so good okay we'll give you that okay Nadia Hussain those are your desert island dishes thank you so much <laughs> thank you <laughs> so there we are feels so lovely to be back thank you for listening don't forget to tell all your friends or your colleagues about the podcast the more the merrier and i will see you next week for more desert island dishes bye